0: Welcome to the Reimagine Medicine podcast. We look forward to delving into the topics that are shaping clinical care, medical research, medical education, and challenging us to reimagine medicine. Each month we bring together clinicians, researchers, educators, healthcare thought leaders, and medical students to share the experiences and ideas that are fueling their efforts. In this episode, we will discuss Reimagine Health is My Fate in My Genes. I'm Dr. Johnny Lifschitz.
1: I'm Dr. Katie Bright.
0: We are faculty members at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Thank you for joining us.
1: Welcome. Each of us inherit unique genetic material that forms who we are and guides our way through life. Experiences throughout life can modify the genome and the genetic transcripts that constitute who we are. In one way, genetics are the determinant of health. However, we know environmental, social determinants of health and other things can contribute and modify. We will explore the capabilities, future trends, and challenges of genetic knowledge, counseling, and interventions. It's so great to have you with us.
2: The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and their guests and do not represent the opinions of the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, or Banner Health. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, consult your personal family physician for medical care.
1: Dr. Wise is program director in the Division of Genomic Medicine at the National Institutes of Health's National Human Genome Research Institute. She is also the keynote speaker at the second annual Reimagine Health Is My Fate in My Genes symposium hosted here at the UA College of Medicine, Phoenix. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Dr. Wise, for joining us. Quick question to start us off because I know this is a question that many of our listeners may have. Can you illustrate the difference between genomic medicine and precision medicine? No, that's a great question. So when you talk
3: about precision medicine, it's really talking about being able to utilize medicine incorporating lifestyle, environment, and genetics into the medical care. So for a lifestyle, you might be thinking something about, like, is someone exercising? In the environment, you might be thinking more about exposures that they might have had, and then their genetic background and how all of those things together could influence someone's care. Genomic medicine is then one component of a precision or personalized medicine program where you're focusing uh, specifically on that genomics component. Excellent.
0: I'm in awe of the brevity of your answer and the concrete definition that genomic medicine is part of precision medicine. We're also hearing that genomics and genetic information can have both benefit and risks associated with it. So from your perspective... Uh, Under what conditions can and should genetics be used to inform and guide clinical care?
3: Right now, we have a couple of circumstances where there has been shown to be clinical utility to being able to use genomic information in care. So one of the most recent ones in one of the programs I've been working with, Insight for Newborn Sequencing in Genomic Medicine and Public Health, We've been looking at being able to use sequencing in the NICU or neonatal intensive care unit population. This is an instance where it's been shown that being able to do the sequencing when people don't understand or know what the condition is that a really critically ill infant is presenting with can potentially have a benefit to being able to help guide the care and treatment and make management changes that can potentially help save the lives of some of these infants or make changes in how they might be treated. So that's an instance where there is a known clinical benefit to being able to utilize the information.
0: Just to interject there for a second, does that mean that genomics or genetics at that point can substitute for a patient history? Because throughout the first couple years of life, the patient is not able to articulate their symptoms uh, that would help to guide their clinical care.
3: So there are people who are looking at being able to study that. Could you potentially do a genome at birth and use it for lifelong care? That's still mostly in the research context at this point in time, but there are a number of researchers who are interested in seeing if having that information early on could potentially help both for patients, as you mentioned, who are very young and can't necessarily articulate symptoms, as well as for individuals who might be adopted or other situations where they might not know their family history and be able to gain additional information from their genomic background.
1: What do you think is possible with genetic sequencing? Where can it go in the future? Like, what are some of the the big goals that you could see coming from genetic sequencing? Yeah,
3: so right now we're seeing a lot of sequencing being applied in very specific clinical settings. And part of what the research is really learning right now is what are the right, appropriate settings to be utilizing sequencing at this point in time? How can it best be utilized? And then trying to determine what some of the challenges are to being able to use sequencing in a clinical versus a research setting. So for example, in the NICU, as we just talked about, when you're talking about these critically ill infants, it's really important to be able to get the sequencing information back fast and to be able to do the analysis quickly in order to be able to return that information to the clinicians for care. So that's one area where we're seeing advances in sequencing potentially for the clinic is looking at being able to get technologies to be able to make the sequencing faster and potentially even easier to sample the patients in a clinical setting to be able to use it for care.
0: The way in which you spoke about the uh, need for fast treatment or fast interpretation of those genetics is, is truly uh, necessary and it could also be in a trauma setting where someone comes in and unable to speak or unable or, or not accompanied by somebody who knows the history.
3: One of the things that we've heard come up a lot in our discussions at NHGRI was really a lot of concern from the community around access and making sure that as genomics gets applied in care, that everyone will have the opportunity to be able to benefit and that this isn't going to end up being something where people have to be able to have the ability to be able to pay in order to be able to have access to that information. And so that is an area that we're definitely trying to do more research in, in order to be able to determine how can you implement genomics in the clinic and try and make sure that you're not leaving populations behind. A number of our research programs at NHGRI have specifically tried to make sure that they're reaching out to populations that might have previously been underserved or underrepresented in communities to make sure that the genomic medicine implementation is reaching those other areas, as well as a number of the sequencing resources that the NIH is funding are also trying to make sure that we're getting more diverse populations engaged in them, such as the All of Us
1: program and things like that at the NIH. Oh, that's great. I know as a primary care physician, I struggle with this piece, just trying to get resources for my patients, especially underserved. We're seeing some progress when you can demonstrate um, cost-effectiveness. So Medicaid has started to pay for genetic testing for SSRIs and anti-anxiety medications because I think they know that that keeps people out of the hospital. So in the long term, even though it's a $4,000 test, with time and with advocates such as yourself, that over time we can sort of make everyone see that there might be a benefit yeah, no, that's a great point. And part of that really
3: is developing the databases to be able to make sure that the information is available to be able to benefit all members of the population in the US. It is also important to be able to think about some of these economic aspects of it and look at what really are the best uses of genomics in different care settings. Are there some times when doing just a very specific test might be the right option versus other times that you might be looking more broadly because you really want to be able to look more at broad hypothesis and generation and trying to figure out what might be the case in more of an unsolved case.
1: What do you think are the biggest challenges right now from a disease standpoint? Um, Meaning things that we need to really devote our time and energy, needed discovery areas. Yeah, so
3: the NIH has 27 different institutes and centers that all focus on something different. NHGRI tends to focus on trying to be disease agnostic and really trying to develop the tools and resources to be able to make genomics accessible, particularly in the clinical populations in genomic medicine, to any disease area that might be of interest. I personally work on a program that looks at undiagnosed diseases, the Undiagnosed Diseases Network, which is funded by the Common Fund of, at the NIH. And that group particularly focuses on trying to c- take cases that have previously been unable to reach a diagnosis through extensive clinical evaluation and trying to apply cutting-edge research techniques such as genomics to being able to try and help them find a diagnosis. And so far, that's one of the areas that we've been seeing the most benefit of genomics is in these unsolved or rare disease type cases. But the hope is that as we learn more, that this information will be beneficial to common diseases as well.
0: As we think about the focus of what we do here at the U Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, we want to make sure that we educate our future physicians in how to deal with genomics and genomic medicine as it gets incorporated into um, allopathic medicine. Do you have any thoughts on best ways to inspire young physicians in this domain, or areas that they can uh, focus their attention on?
3: Yeah, so training was definitely another topic that came up recently at the workshop that we held talking about where should we be thinking about strategies and gaps and areas that need more attention for genomic medicine and not just for clinicians who might be directly seeing the participants themselves, but also trying to make sure that there's appropriate training for genetic counselors for all of the different specialists, for the individuals who might be interacting more directly with the patients and helping guide them through the care process. That there's gonna need to be a lot of education that ends up occurring around being able to make sure that genomics is understandable and easy to access in order for it to be used for care, in order for, any specialty to be able to utilize that information.
0: Yeah, and uh, like you're talking about, the the information has to be requested and delivered in a short turnaround time. You can't Mm -hmm. be six months later you get their test results and are able to work with that patient. You want to have it be fast, readily accessible, easy to understand, easy to digest, but also reliable, which is a huge undertaking for you, the NIH, and all of us to try to figure out how to Uh, incorporated into the future of medicine.
3: Yeah, we really want to make sure that it gets to a point where it's like any other test that you might be ordering in the clinic, where you don't necessarily need to be able to understand all of the details behind how that specific assay is run, but that people can understand what the assay is testing for, know
1: when they should order it for which patients, and then be able to interpret the results. That would be amazing. So I'm going to ask you a question because I know that a lot of my patients will come in and they hear this buzzword personalized medicine and they'll come in and just say you know doc you should be able to genetically test me to see what's wrong with me and have a personalized treatment and it's hard to explain to a patient like that's not exactly how it works right and we've come a long way but certainly we're still learning can you talk about that kind of the where we've come maybe starting you know with the the cancer research on because i know it's spilling over into other areas and we're making leaps and bounds in other dimensions but also kind of some realistic expectations for the common um you know, for, for the community? No, that's a great question. So definitely, we've
3: seen lots of progress within the oncology community in trying to develop cancer treatments that are more personalized and tailored to individuals, where we can actually look and do genetic testing in order to determine what the best therapeutic might be for an individual patient. Sometimes that means that they might be getting the same therapeutic as someone who has a cancer in a different location in their body, but they have the same genetic variants, and therefore, they're more likely to respond to the same therapeutic. We've also seen, more recently, that there are a number of therapeutics that are being developed and created for rare diseases, where they are being truly tailored to the individual patient themselves. These cases of N of 1 patients with a very unique phenotype, where they've been able to do treatments such as antisense oligonucleotide therapies that are really allowing for individual patients to get individual treatments. But though we have these cases where it really is allowing for a single patient to be able to benefit with a truly individualized therapy, it is going to take a lot of work for us to be able to scale those very individualized approaches that can work for a single child today into approaches that will really work for whole populations in the future and be available for everyone.
0: Excellent. Uh, that opportunity, as well as the example of the ends of one, provide that hope mm-hmm. that genetics uh puts in front of us that hope that uh, each of those genetic codons that we have for each of our genes may hold answers to not only our health, um, but also risk for disease or even having a disease being diagnosed. So thank you very much for leading us through that. It's been a pleasure hosting you, Dr. Wise. Thank you for joining us.
1: Joining us today is Dr. Michael Kruer, Associate Professor of Neurology and Child Health with the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Dr. Creer also serves as director cerebral palsy and pediatric movement disorders program at Barrow Neurological Institute and in Phoenix Children's Hospital. Dr. Creer, you specialize in research related to the genetic basis of cerebral palsy in children. Can you share a little bit about how you became passionate about that? What drew you to this?
4: Yeah, thank you, Katie. So um, I've always been interested in uh, the causes, the fundamental things that drive neurological diseases in children. And I've been interested in uh, developmental disorders for some time. One of the things that I really loved about genetics was the finality of it, Uh, the possibility that even at a fundamental level, it could give you a solid jumping off point uh, from which to understand what might be causing a child's symptoms.
0: Yeah, that's a remarkable way to think about it, that once your genetic material is coded, it's coded for who you are. Can you speak to the fact of how much our genes are really coded, or are they modifiable through behavior, through diet and other means?
4: Our genes are uh, coded, as, as you mentioned, Johnny, um, and that tends to persist for life. Uh, Although, as we're now starting to understand, there can be changes that happen in certain populations of cells and tissues over time. Um, In addition, there is a whole field of epigenetics that looks at some of the modifying factors that determine whether those genes that are encoded or hardwired are
0: actually turned on or off, and that's proven
4: to be a very important area of uh, research as well
0: can you uh, lead us through some of the advances in early diagnosis or rapid diagnosis of the diseases that you're interested in or the patients that you see and treat?
4: Yeah, so we're, um, we're interested uh, broadly in, in childhood movement disorders. Um, and while those disorders sound very rare, um, most of our patients are actually represent uh, either children with cerebral palsy, a major neurodevelopmental disorder, or children with uh, Tourette syndrome, which is uh, in and of itself also an important uh, developmental condition. So, at, at this point in time, um, the gold standard is still clinical diagnosis, and so most of the diagnoses, the disorders that we see, are actually characterized um, by an expert f- uh, physician in the office. What we're starting to think of... Um, you know, more with genetic uh, capabilities is the ability to truly understand the etiology or the cause um, of those disorders, which has proven to be very insightful.
1: I sort of wanted to just feed off of Johnny's last question. So, as a primary care physician, often I'm first contact, or there might be a, you know, I've treated many patients with neuromuscular disorders, and sometimes patients and families can get frustrated in this process that you described of getting to a specialist who can make the formal diagnosis. And, and establish a good treatment plan because you guys are rare and it, sometimes it's hard to get our folks access to specialists. So can you talk about that just a little bit uh, about the process?
4: Yeah, yes. Yeah, so so I, I agree. I mean, I, I think that there's, there's definitely a shortage um, of pediatric specialists, uh, certainly in, in the clinical neurosciences, but in, in many areas of, um, of pediatric medicine. Um, with that said, I, I really do think that there's no substitute uh, for having uh, a really um, strong advocate as your uh, primary care physician. Um, as you mentioned, primary care physicians form the first line and uh, really are the ones who often know the kids and their families the very best. Um, and so a lot of current efforts are actually trying to raise awareness and try to identify developmental disorders earlier and earlier um, with the help of the primary care physician um, and also the help of the, the family themselves.
0: How have you adapted Existing uh, treatments or how have you uh, implemented new treatments to assist in the families that have cerebral palsy or Tourette's? Yes, so it's it's proven to be very very interesting I mean, I I think
4: we've known for a long time that in the case of cerebral palsy um, Many people both in the scientific and medical community and in the lay community um, are aware of the effect that um, birth-related complications can have on a child Um, Our research is starting to indicate that um, in addition to those known risk factors, that some kids may actually carry genetic mutations that may represent uh, the cause of that child's cerebral palsy in and of itself. Um, In other kids, there's proving to be a complex interplay of genetic and environmental factors that are together um, causing the, uh, the cerebral palsy. Right now, the research is still in the early stages, and so um, most of the work that we're doing is still trying to um, establish the many different causes of cerebral palsy from a genetic standpoint. Uh, but what's been uh, intensely gratifying to me as, as a physician, in addition to, um, to a research scientist, has been the ability to sometimes use these genetic findings and apply completely uh, treatments that we otherwise would not have have thought of uh, in a million years sometimes uh, in in the context of cerebral palsy treatment. So for example, most of our treatments for for CP are really directed at trying to uh, limit the effects of symptoms, try to improve symptoms. Um, A lot of times these represent fancy band-aids for what's really causing the problem. Uh, But yet, we're learning that, uh, particularly from uh, a genetic standpoint, that kids with CP may in fact have a very specific uh, genetic misspelling, if you will, that causes um, their symptoms. And in some of those cases, uh, it's actually possible to apply a completely new treatment. So for example, uh, there is a a young boy with a, a rare form of CP that's caused by a single gene mutation. Uh, that we've just now started uh, treating with caffeine Uh, and never in a million years would have uh, thought of of doing that. Um, But nevertheless, earlier this year there was a paper written uh, by a group in Europe uh, where they actually used double espressos to treat this boy's motor symptoms. And it just so happens that uh, the specific misspelling that he had in his genetic code affected the way that a certain part of the brain was functioning and caffeine was able to, in part, counteract uh, that dysfunction.
1: Thank you so much for clarifying the nature-nurture components of cerebral palsy. I think even with the students, it's a common, frequently asked question, and I I believe there's a lot of misunderstanding in the community in general, that it's primarily a a lack of oxygen or a birth um, traumatic event, so that was great. Thanks for doing that. Um, One of the other things you mentioned was how important early diagnosis, often happening at the primary care level is because we can hopefully get our our patients to the specialists that they need. I'm curious how you broach, um, you know, making sure that the patients know that we're taking care of them with false hope. But maybe you could give us some pearls on what our patients can expect when we make this referral as far as... Um, besi- yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah,
4: it's, it's a it's a very important and, and it's a difficult question to answer. I, I think what they should expect from the specialist um, whose care they're entrusting their child to is, is honesty. Um, so I, I think that um, in the past, uh, many parents would become frustrated because they felt like specialists would give them, you know, doom and gloom news um, about how their child would not be able to do this or would not be able to do that. I think that the the dynamic has shifted somewhat, and one of the things that I love about working with with kids is that they surprise us all the time. Um, however, I, I think it is our duty to share with the family what we observe, um, and to share with them our worries. You know, the things that we see in their child that concern us, and to talk about you know how they might turn out. Um, you know, both best case scenario and worst case scenario, and then. As we're sharing the things that we worry about for their child, we can also share the ideas that we have to try to um, give that, that kid the best um, quality of life he or she could possibly have. So what is it that we can do now um, and in the future to try to promote function, to try to, uh, you know, limit pain, to try to improve quality of life the most that we can? And I think that that, that kind of open, honest conversation is, is what, um, what they should hope to get from their specialists.
0: In the last moment that we have together, I want to build on that idea of honesty, that it's more challenging to be honest when we're at a lack of information. And so what is lacking right now? Where does the research need to go, uh, both in terms of depth and breadth, knowing that you are uh, one of the international leaders on the Cerebral Palsy Consortium? How is that consortium directed at overcoming those uh, black holes of knowledge? so that we can empower physicians to uh, better educate and guide their patients.
4: Yeah, I, I think it's an exciting time, but it, it's also um, you know, a, a, very, um, a very sobering time in the sense that I think that our knowledge is about a mile wide and an inch deep. There, there's an awful lot that we need to know, and I think the more that we are learning, we're realizing um, how much yet still there is to, to be uncovered. Um, and so I, I think that these problems are so big that they're beyond any single investigator, certainly any single laboratory. Um, and, and so on that note, uh, larger organizations, collaborative research is really something that's, um, that's
0: been very key to helping to, to move the needle forward. Unquestionably, the amount of content that's in our own genomic uh, makeup is huge, and we have to be able to harness it and understand it to be able to apply it. Uh, Dr. Kruer, thank you for sharing your insights. We would like to welcome Dr. Matt Huntelman to the podcast. Dr. Huntelman is a professor in the Neurogenomics Division of the Translational Genomics Research Institute, otherwise known as TGen. His research interests center around the investigation of the omics, such as genomics, transcriptomics, and proteomics, uh, primarily focused on neurological traits and disease. Welcome Matt.
5: Hi, thanks for
0: having me. Matt, in your view, where are the greatest opportunities to expand knowledge of genetics that may influence how we both identify neurological traits and how we treat disease?
5: I think the future here still needs to be focused on personalizing that information. So in the past, in the world of genomics, we've used it to understand populations, understand themes in our research, and uh, in the case of oncology research, for example, uh, the field has done a great job personalizing the information. So using genetic information to guide treatment, for example, of cancers. On the neurological side, we need to start to adopt that model, in my opinion. Uh, It's a taller ask than on the oncology side, because it's so much easier to point to a tumor and say, that's bad, I want to take that out, and I want to study it, We can't do that so easily with brain disease and and disorders. However, we have to strive for that. Um, And what that means for the patient with neurological disease, that means, hopefully, uh, just like the oncology patients, improved treatments, which have greater efficacy from the start. In other words, you're not hunting through different drugs to find one that works. And also, hopefully, along with that comes uh, lowered side effects. So in my opinion, I, I really think the more that we can move towards personalized use of genomic information in neurological disease, the more we are moving towards the future.
1: That was a great answer, and it kind of overlapped with one of my next questions. As as a physician, I'm always thinking, how does this translate to patient care? And you answered it a right. bit. We're seeing it in behavioral health too, which is which is great with you know SSRIs and different neural, you know neurotransmitter um, medications used for depression and um, anxiety. So. Can you expand a little bit more on how that would look as far as the impact on patient care down the road?
5: Yeah, um, that's, that, that's another great, uh, great question. It's really hard to predict exactly how it would look, but let's talk through a few scenarios. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's start by just taking the patient out of it. So what is our risk around the table for disease, for the various neurological diseases that we might all be scared about? Uh, do we want to know that risk if it doesn't come with a drug option? Uh, I think that's another great question for people to ponder. Um, But I think we're seeing the convergence of those two things. So we can define our individualized risk for many dreaded neurological diseases today, not all of them. And we certainly don't have a complete handle on how to define risk, but we can do a good job for diseases like Alzheimer's disease, for example. Um, If I had to put a number on it for you, we can probably use genetics to tell you about half of your genetic risk for Alzheimer's disease. So that's obviously not the complete, the complete story, um, however, it's knowledge. Understanding our personalized risk is powerful because it's knowledge, it helps us with planning our future. In some cases, uh, it doesn't mean that it comes with a therapeutic approach to help us avoid disease, but it's still powerful. Um, on the patient side, uh, like you said, really what we wanna do is tailor the medicines mm-hmm. and hopefully get the right medicine to the right patients as early as possible. And you gave a great example on the mental health side. You know, can we get folks suffering from mental health disorders and diseases on the right meds quicker? Because that's always a struggle, and it's a constant, uh, you know, sort of parade of medicines until we find one that works. Um, can we accelerate that? If we can, that that that's a big, you know, that would be a big improvement. Um, you know, the other thing that I think it could it could play a role in is really. Um, for neurodegenerative diseases, understanding who might need to um, have a greater focus on surveillance. So that's the other thing that I hope genomics can do for us in the future is to tell us um, not necessarily uh, what medicines we might need to treat our diseases, um, which is an important part of it, but what diseases should I most be worried about? So, uh, you know, you hit a certain age, and the the reflex uh, when you go visit your doctor is to run a certain test. And we hit these milestones, and we, and we say, well, based on your age, we got to check for X, Y, or Z. Maybe those aren't at the top of my list. Mm-hmm. Maybe that test is important, but maybe it's number 10. Maybe I should be focused more on you know, getting a good uh, baseline memory test mm-hmm. because Alzheimer's is at the top of my list instead of colon cancer, for example. Um, so I think that's the other thing where I hope genomics can guide medicine is really in um, understanding when a patient walks in that door, what what should be your top five concerns as a physician, not just simply based on age and demographics. What should I talk to Mrs. Smith about when she walks in the door? Mm-hmm. Um, if I have additional knowledge about her genetic risk for various diseases. That's
1: helpful because we're so prevention-based. That's right. But there's so many preventive studies to always keep in mind. And really, I know you have a question, but I wanted to tell you that we have a genomics session um, for our medical students, and it always, exactly, it gets so heated and so interesting to listen to the students because you always have the cohort that thinks we should do all genetics. Everyone should know everything for resources and prevention, and the other that say, well, why would you test for this? So,
0: right it's really
1: an interesting hot debate that we have every six weeks in our clerkships so
0: well extending on that uh, our medical students are taught to identify chief complaints as uh, a patient comes in through their door but where you're re-guiding them is chief risks like let's discuss what your chief risks are both to you as well as what may be encoded and what's going on I do want to steal a transition from Katie and say now to switch gears for a moment. Yeah. You know, get up on a little bit of a lighter topic. Uh, When you spoke about knowledge and learning and memory, which could be genetic, um, I know that my wife and I have completely different ways in which we encode information, uh, which could have a genetic component. I want you to comment on that, but then I want you to take it another way and say, what can we do to either coax some of our, our less aggressive genes to improve our memory, or what can we do to suppress them, or what can we do to overcome genes that we don't have uh, in terms of an environmental factor, intentionally pushing you outside of your comfort zone, which is in the genes and more into the nurture or environment component to how we conduct ourselves?
5: Yeah. Um, so. It's funny you said that last part because uh, in my presentation at the Reimagined Health Symposium, I'll focus primarily on non-genetic factors that uh, we can change to improve our chances of having better cognition across Mm -hmm. the lifespan. So we'll get a little into that um, during during my presentation. Um, But as you pointed out, Johnny, um, there is a very clear genetic basis for um, our cognitive performances. A lot of work has gone into studying this. Probably not large enough groups of humans have been examined just yet, but there's been significant work done in this area. But also, as you're pointing out, it's, our, our fate is never tied entirely to our genes. Um, only in very rare cases, uh, several rare diseases, um, can be linked directly to a broken gene that causes the disease and you will not be able to avoid it no matter what you do. However, for the vast majority of things that we are worried about, uh, diseases we are worried about, it's a combination of your genetic profile, your genetic risk, and your environment, your lifestyle, your health and medical factors, how those add up together. Um, I'll fall back to Alzheimer's disease. You know, Some of our best guesses is that 60 to 75 percent of it might be genetic. But then the missing part is environment mm-hmm. and lifestyle choices. That is, uh, it's, a bit, it's a bit scary to think, well, my, my risk for Alzheimer's is hard-coded to a certain ex- uh, uh, extent, but it's also, should be very motivating to think, well, what can I change? Mm-hmm. What are the things mm-hmm. I can alter in my life? Tell me. Um, I, I, I wish I knew exactly that. what to tell you. However, Uh, What I can tell you is a general theme that we all should take to heart, and that is healthy body typically equals a healthier brain. So, uh, you know, everything we know we should be doing, eating (laughs) well-balanced diets, getting our sleep, which probably none of us here in the room get enough of, um, exercising, and uh, being social with each other. So those sort of four things are the main things I recommend for good general brain health. Uh, the last one surprises people sometimes, but our, we we are a social being. Uh, human beings are very social, and our brain thrives on those interactions.
0: So to extend that into the, the cellular domain, if you have someone who starts exercising, sleeping better, eating better, can you see those effects in the genes or in the gene expression?
5: Yeah, so uh, in many cases, absolutely we can. We can see your cells respond at a molecular level. Uh, I I would say we're in the beginning stages of that, but very clearly we can see responses of your tissue and your blood cells to exercise. Things change when you exercise. Um, We're presuming most of those changes are good. However, that's where more of the work needs to be done uh, to understand, you know, what's a good response to exercise and what's perhaps an acute inflammatory response to exercise. Um, but a- absolutely. So uh, sleeping better, higher quality sleep results in gene expression changes uh, throughout the body and also in your brain. So there are significant changes that are happening happening within your cells as a result of a lifestyle choice, as a result of sleeping longer or exercising.
1: That's awesome. It's like you said, all of the advice we always give to our patients and no. Yeah that we should be following. It's easier said than done to change a lifestyle in someone who's maybe in their 50s and hasn't been doing that, but it's great advice. So bringing it back to your personal research, I'm sure that you hear all the time from patients and the public some misunderstanding or misconceptions about genetics. Can you do a little myth busting or talk about what those common misunderstandings are?
5: Great question. Myth busting. Um, Let's see. Um, I think probably the biggest myth I'd like to bust for people are that, um, that genetic scientists are not thoughtful and careful about the work they're doing. Mm. So um, I obviously run in these circles, and I've you know met a lot of geneticists during my career. And almost to a scientist, we're very um, attuned to the fact that the you know the the research we're doing in genetics is actually because it seems so hardwired to the public. It's really important that we get it right, and that it's handled ethically, and safely and responsibly. I think that's uh, you know uh, Hollywood can help us run away a little bit with our imaginations about what genetics can do, and uh, perhaps what it can't do. But I think that's sort of the biggest mm-hmm. one I'd like folks to understand. Um, is that it's it's a serious you know, it's serious research with serious ramifications. And most scientists who I ran into really consider it um, a very ethically important uh, topic as well and treat it as such. Um, that's a big one. Um
0: yeah, when I, th- you're I think one of yeah, When you're holding uh other people's lives in your hands essentially and as you said when you're holding their risk for disease or their right. risk for a long life or a risk for being super healthy despite what they eat uh, it's an important uh, it's an important responsibility uh, right. that our physicians take oaths the hippocratic oath to make sure that everything is done in the patient's best interest and you're describing to some extent a geneticist's oath in the same manner which is which is exactly what we would expect. And thank you for articulating Mm -hmm.
5: that. The human genome is extremely powerful. I mean, it is your personal instruction manual, your personal book of life, and we have to treat it that way. Um, I guess the other myth that I would uh, like to bust in general would be, uh, we're not nearly moving as quickly as it would seem in the popular press and the the Hollywood movies. The technologies may exist, but putting them in action um, is never really as quick as uh, we would like it to be. And um, I think that's one of the things that we struggle with. So for example, if you take something that's really popular now in in the press, and that is CRISPR. So CRISPR is essentially a molecular technique that lets you rewrite the human genome. So that sounds exciting because you could Uh, Cure disease, if you knew there was one single word you needed to rewrite in the human genome, you could do that with CRISPR. Um, It's also scary because uh, one could imagine starting to produce designer human beings by altering various genes across the genome. Um, But the fact of the matter is we're really not there yet on the medical use of CRISPR. There's a lot of promise. There's a lot of excitement. Um, But a lot of these things really, I I think, um, just are portrayed as if they're moving quicker than they really are. Do we need to be careful about it and make the right decisions and and, uh, absolutely.
0: Mm
5: -hmm. Um, And we should be excited about these things, but I think they don't happen nearly as fast as um, the general public might imagine.
1: Well, thank you for sharing your work with us, Dr. Huntelman. It's been a pleasure talking with you. We have to take a break, but we'll continue our discussion with our next guest in just a moment.
2: The Reimagined Medicine podcast is brought to you by the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Dr. Johnny Lifschitz serves as the director of the Translational Neurotrauma Research Program, which is a joint venture through Barrow Neurological Institute at Phoenix Children's Hospital, and the Department of Child Health at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, and the Phoenix Veterans Affair Healthcare System. Dr. Katie Bright is the Chair of the Curriculum Committee and Associate Dean of Clinical and Competency Based Education at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. She is a family physician practicing at Bayless Integrated Healthcare.
1: Welcome back to the Reimagine Medicine podcast. We are pleased to have Dee Quinn, MS, and Certified Genetic Counselor joining us. Ms. Quinn is Program Director of the University of Arizona Genetic Counseling Graduate Program, and she serves as the Director of Mother to Baby Arizona. She's a clinical instructor with the University of Arizona College of Medicine in the Tucson Department of OB-GYN and the College of Pharmacy. So quick question for you, uh, Ms. Quinn. Yes. I think some of our listeners might be wanting to know a little more about what a certified genetic counselor is, what is the training, what is your area of specialty. Can you just give a little more information about about your your specialty? Thank you.
6: So genetic counselors um, usually become interested in the field because it's a combination of the science and the counseling and they like the ability to use their science um, sort of in the real world with with folks. The um, program to become a genetic counselor is um, an accredited program by the American Council for Genetic Counselors. It's a two-year master's program that includes both academic and clinical work. Following graduation from an accredited program, all genetic counselors have to pass a certification exam.
1: Excellent. Is there any supervised Clinical hours, can you tell us about about that?
6: Yeah, so in the first year, the students um, do one day a week, and in the second year, two days a week, both of which are supervised either by um, a a variety of clinicians Mm -hmm. in generally in genetics, so usually genetic counselors or MD geneticists.
0: So the certified genetic counselors are well-informed and ready to deal with this type of information. Um, the information can come from many different sources today we know of the commercial 23andMe or ancestry DNA types of sources of genetic information parenthetically misinformation that could come and a a patient is walking into a provider's office with just reams of binders um, from Dr. Google who tell them all the things that are going on can you Can you tell us what training extends beyond the certified genetic counselor and perhaps to the medical students or to nurses in terms of being able to hold that conversation and and, um, guide these patients initially with all that information to a counselor?
6: Well, I think that um, we have some work to do (laughs) in the healthcare system. Um, You know, this is a fairly recent development most primary care providers are not real familiar with these tests or trying to interpret the results and therefore giving informations to their patients. Um, I, you know, I, I would hope that what happens is that when someone comes to their primary care with this kind of information, that they'd be referred to genetic counseling if they have specific questions. So, you know, the ancestry part is fun, <laughs> everybody likes to do that. The health um, section is a little worrisome for a number of reasons. Um, I think most people have focused on the concern that an individual might turn up with a change in a gene that would impact their health. Um, Interestingly, most of the direct-to-consumer testing companies have got a pretty good handle on that, where the medical director will actually call the person and explain to them what that result means, and then refer them on for further, uh, generally, management of the condition. I think my bigger concern has to do with people who get negative results. So for mm-hmm. instance, these many of the direct-to-consumer testing are now testing, and probably breast cancer is the best example, mm-hmm. testing for breast cancer genes. They're only testing for two changes in two genes, which, while they're very common in one specific ethnic group, are not um, reliable in other groups. So my, my big concern are people who see that they do not have these two changes in BRCA1 and two, and come away with thinking, well, then I'm not at risk for breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, if they have a strong family history, there are very well likely to be other genes that are involved. Mm-hmm. And their risk may not be decreased at all. Mm-hmm. And so I worry a lot about those folks not following up with medical management or um, prevention, those kinds of things, uh, early detection. Um that would make a big difference in terms of their long-term health care.
0: Yeah, I like the way that you put that in terms of genes showing you're at risk, but also genes masking a risk that uh, is equally ethically challenging and requires that level of genetic counseling in order to be able to appreciate the results and guide uh, treatment and activities moving forward.
1: We, we we see that, and I'm just going to echo, yes. as a primary care physician, I, I see that all the time. My 23andMe said I'm fine, so I'm not going to do my yes. mammogram. Or it's like, no, hold up, right? One in nine of us <laughs> get it anyways, with right. or without any genetic risk.
6: Right, and it, <laughs> I think it's important to recognize that mm-hmm. those two genes they are testing for are not necessarily the most common, or mm-hmm. um, you know, they're they're common in a specific ethnic group. But it doesn't translate to everyone else. <laughs> right. And, <laughs> and, it's, so. and, it's,
1: and it's prevalent anyways. Yes. We you know Absolutely. we are all at risk. So. Absolutely. Um, and, and I will say the other thing you mentioned, we have a long way to come in primary care, understanding how to interpret, but yes. also advocating for patients where it is appropriate and understanding why certain things are covered and certain things aren't. Because certainly we can't always get the genetic testing that yes. we want for yes. our patients. And it is frustrating at this point. We have a long way to go, I think, just developing that piece of our healthcare care system. Yes. Uh, So even sometimes in a high-risk patient, we can't get them their testing. Uh,
6: It is one of the things that I have to say as a genetic counselor I think we uh, dislike, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but is a a very um, important part of what we do is that we spend a lot of time writing letters of medical necessity Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, to try to get tests covered in those families where we've taken a family history and there is clearly a concern that there may be an increased risk. Um, And it's so variable from one health system to another. Um, You just kind of never know. So it's hard to answer patients' questions about will this be covered by insurance? Well, let's give it a try. (laughs) You know, we don't don't always know the answer to that. Um, If I look at all of genetics, I think that the best well-covered area is in cancer. So they're more likely (laughs) to cover tests in cancer um, than in other areas. So, for instance, in adult uh, genetic disorders or pediatric ones, which is a, a real frustration. I know for the pediatric providers, they're trying to find answers for these families who have children, either with
0: birth defects or
6: developmental disabilities, and um, are having a real struggle getting those Mm -hmm. tests done.
0: So I want to dive in just a second there on the consumer tests or even the laboratory tests. Uh, Back when I was in graduate school, everybody was uh, trademarking or patenting genes they were finding. Mm. In this domain and in this space, is there any concern about not being able to test for a specific gene because of those type of infringements, or is it totally an open book?
6: No, I think um, we've come a long way in that regard, in that um, there is much more sharing of data among among institutions. um, And the gene patenting issue um, was a blip, I think, and not necessarily a reflection of what's happening.
0: Okay, great.
1: Um, You know, once you know your genetic information. There's no unknowing it. That's so you So you kind of touched upon that. So maybe just a little more guidance for those of us that are training in the health professions or practicing on uh, what would be the factors you should consider in deciding to test or not to test in the first place?
6: Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I would say that my inclination is um, it would be best if an individual could sit down with a genetic counselor because really what you're talking about is informed consent. Mm-hmm. Do they understand what the test can do, what the test can't do, mm-hmm. and are these results that they want? Is Does that fit into their, um, their life, their culture, their way of thinking, their way of, of receiving health care? So that's sort of the upfront part that I'm... You know, I, the direct-to-consumer tests do have a whole lot of information, mm-hmm. and it's all um, in eight-point font, right. and <laughs> nobody
1: reads it. It's tough, right? <laughs>
6: so, uh, yeah. so are there
1: so. enough of, of you, is uh. my next question, <laughs> and, and can, can Medicaid or underserved patients yeah. see you So
6: there are now 5,000 genetic counselors. I just came back from our annual okay. meeting, and I have been doing this a long time. (laughs) 5,000
0: in the United States?
6: In the United States. When I started in 1981, there were less than 200. Wow. (laughs) So for me, that's huge. Um, But in the grand scheme of things, you're right. There are not enough of us. Now, some of this has to do with billing issues. Mm -hmm. Genetic counselors cannot bill for their services on their own, unlike, for instance, nurse practitioners, Mm -hmm. where there's a very clear mechanism to do that. Um, usually Medicare and Medicaid or CMS sets those guidelines and they do not have guidelines right now for genetic counselors so our national organization has introduced a federal bill it's in the House of Representatives at the moment to try to get payment for genetic counselors I think that'll make a huge difference Oh, absolutely because often well sometimes insurance companies will pay for the testing but not for the counseling
0: can you help walk us through this process? I understand that the genetic testing itself may be derived from a blood prick and then one test is done. And then the counseling part, um, I'm only putting it in the context of someone who may be going to therapy on a regular weekly or monthly basis. I'm not conceptualizing how often a genetic counselor would be engaged with a patient. So.
6: Um First, in terms of the testing, it's actually a spit test, Okay. <laughs> um, which is quite nice because there are certainly folks who really don't like to have blood drawn, Fair especially enough. children. Yeah. Um, and it's really pretty easy to do um, and and very reliable. Um, now in terms of genetic counseling, it's usually a one-time session for um, pre-test counseling, oh, usually okay. about an hour. Um, And and again, we explore um, what they understand about what the test can do, what it can't do, and then how that will um, fit into their lifestyle. Um, If there's an unusual result, we will usually meet with the family again in a follow-up genetic counseling for, again, an hour or so, Um, but for the most part, we don't follow families.
0: In addition, on a daily basis, Mm -hmm. there are new discoveries about genes and their relationships to each other and the relationships to disease process. So although someone's genetic code may not change, the interpretation of that code could change. So Mm -hmm. I'm assuming there are individuals out there who would be considered high risk, whether it's real risk or anxiety risk, Mm -hmm. who want to get re Is that ever a case? In your long experience, yes. how many times have you recounseled? counseled
6: well, a Well, th- you know, it's starting to happen more and more now, and it's really because the science has just exploded. Right. And so now we do have information on people who had tests done five, ten years ago. Um, sometimes they will um, reanalyze the results, and sometimes we have to get another test done.
1: Um, sometimes we see, even with great counseling beforehand, mm-hmm. maybe things head a little south from a behavioral health standpoint after finding out results. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you could sort of tell us about some times that you've seen where things have maybe done had more harm than, than good when someone's found out some of their results. Um, another example is if someone said something like, oh, man, I'm getting Alzheimer's anyway, so who cares about a healthy lifestyle?
6: I would say most people who, again, have gone... Who understand why they're having the test done and then have it done are grateful for the information because they see themselves at risk and they want to know what that risk is and then what they can do to help prevent that risk. So that's been mostly my experience. And
1: I I think having primary, I have a different cap, so I see Mm -hmm. a lot of the other side, the anxiety, because they're doing it not in such a controlled environment. So that speaks very highly of the (laughs) pre-genetic test counseling, I think. Yes. Well, Johnny, I was inspired by this entire session. I have to say, for me, just seeing how everyone is working on such innovative pieces in this um, genomic realm and really noticing and feeling genuinely how patient-oriented everyone is and knowing that this is all about patient care and improve patient outcomes was super inspirational
0: right and in order to get there each of the guests talked a little bit about the technologies and the tools that they're developing or have at their disposal in order to be able to assure the rigor of the data, mm-hmm. to be confident in the results, and to be able to present it in a manner that each uh, patient might be able to digest that information. Um, because the technologies that are advancing are to really understand not only what's in our bodies, but how it affects all of our life and how mm-hmm. it affects the outcomes that we have and the opportunities we all have in front of us.
1: Right, and how that doesn't happen overnight, but everyone's super dedicated. and one of the themes i noticed was just how driven and dedicated all of our guests are and passionate about their research and you know they're not backing down from even the toughest of challenges and and that's
0: right and those challenges aren't just the technology mm-hmm. of understanding dna base pairs but really the ethical issue of talking to patients Mm -hmm. or educating the next generation of genetic counselors, the next generation of physicians to be comfortable talking in the domain of genomics and genomic medicine as it feeds into precision medicine. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, and and like we talked about, that genetic counseling is key. And since clearly we don't yet have enough genetic counselors, although we, we hope that's on the horizon Educating everyone in healthcare so that we know how to appropriately counsel, so we're doing responsible genetic testing and understanding the results, yeah. uh, and able to help our patients navigate it, because it is somewhat confusing for the patients
0: uh, And to some often. extent, that ties into some of our earlier podcasts. They were We were talking about how the patient becomes part of the healthcare team, and so the patient is obviously bringing their DNA mm-hmm. and their genomic uh, information to the course or to the conversation, and then each provider is then helping them to understand it, interpret it, and to be able to use that information to understand their risk, mm-hmm. as well as their absence of risk in particular situations, but to essentially control their, their fate.
1: You know, and it's interesting that you would say that, because what I loved is that we realized that nothing's 100% genetic, right? One of our guests said that our fate is not 100% in our genes. We have some control over and can modify some of our genetic... Um, You know, genetic imprint over time and so because primary care is so interested in prevention, I love just sending that message that it's always important to take care of yourself and have a healthy lifestyle because it does impact your genetic um, fate and your outcomes.
0: Right, and all of this is done through the lens of helping people, Mm -hmm. that the research is informing the medical care, the medical care is informing the patient to make those choices and all of this information is intended to be uh, delivered in a Uh, a a nice wrapped-up bow that provides hope, Mm -hmm. hope that there will be treatments, hope that there will be a healthy life in front of people, hope that uh, uh, each of us can live to the fullest extent that is possible.
1: Hope was the exact sentiment that I would have placed on this episode as well.
0: Right, and so we invite our guests to tune in next time when we explore med tech, the role of big data, VR, and artificial intelligence in healthcare. Lift shits out like a well-functioning GI system
1: bright out like a good night's sleep
2: the reimagined medicine podcast is brought to you by the university of arizona college of medicine phoenix join us again as we highlight aspects of clinical care education and research in an ongoing endeavor to reimagine medicine our podcast team is dr katie bright dr johnny Lifschitz, beth smith and the media production team at the ua college of medicine phoenix our theme song, Dungeon of Return Days, was written and recorded by Midair Machine. The song is accessible on freemusicarchive.org and used under the CC BY-SA 4.0 license.